So I have a, a book in my hand. It's called uh, C.S. Lewis, the, the Screw Tape Letters. So how many of you are familiar with this book? Okay, most all of you, so you know where, what screw tape is. And um, this, is, this is a series of letters written by C.S. Lewis, fictional letters, of course, from uh, one demon to another demon. It's from screw tape to screw tape's, uh, whatever, mentoree. Uh, that would be Wormwood. And uh, he's writing to him so that Wormwood might understand the, the human heart. And so that Wormwood might be able to tempt his, his patient, if you will, to, to lead him astray in, in any way possible, to, to lead him away from following Christ. And, and one of the ways that, that he says is, I just want to read from chapter 3. He says this. He says, Wormwood, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. Now, do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we as we see her, right, from the demonic world, right, spread out throughout all time and space, rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which make our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, that church is quite invisible to humans. All your patience sees is the half-finished, sham Gothic erection on the new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer, with a rather oily expression on his face. When he gets in his pew and looks around, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors, make his mind flirt to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that the next pew really contains. you may know one of them to be a great warrior of the enemy's side, but no matter, your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune, or have boots that squeak, or have double chins, or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. That's what C.S. Lewis says to, to Wormwood, just, just about... Um, just about how you can use the church to your advantage to cause people to, to, to pull away from the church and potentially then away from the Lord. You use the ugliness of people. You use their quirkiness. Use their strange appearance and their, their funny habits. Give them reason to be embarrassed about the people of the church whom they might associate with and so that they might disassociate, hopefully, from them. And hopefully, from a demon's perspective, of course, they will distance themselves from those in the church, seeing Christianity as sort of an, an embarrassing sort of thing, and if perhaps possible, then pull them from the Lord. Now, Paul had a, a similar concern, though, though totally different, of course, but he had a concern that the people of the church would be the source of divisions in the church that would pull people away from the church and away from the Lord. While, while Screwtape focused his attention upon the strangeness of the people, Paul focused his attention upon the, the differing backgrounds of people, maybe the different habits or, or custom or, or cultures or opinions. And Paul was concerned that, that these sorts of differences among the, the body of Christ would cause a division in the church, that the church would soon quarrel with one another and have different opinions and, and be divided as a result. And Paul does everything that he can in his power to see the church is united and overcomes these divisive 
uh, they're just divisive issues. So they might not would be divided, but they would be united. And uh, in our text this morning, it comes from Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 through 4. We're going to see these things. If you haven't turned there, I invite you to turn there right now, page 948 of the, of the Pew Bible. And as you're turning there, again, just as important as we kind of start a new section, new chapter today in, in Romans 14, that we are, are reminded again of the context of these words. Paul began the, the gospel of, of Rome, the, the epistle of Romans, with, right, talking about the gospel, talking about sin and how all of us are under sin and condemnation. None of us are righteous. And then he continued with that next S word, the salvation, coming in chapters 3 through 6, that, that salvation comes by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he talks about sanctification, is our third S word, and that's just our, our struggle that we have to live righteously. And then security, he, Paul talked about chapter 8, that we who believe in Jesus will face no condemnation because we are secure in the love of Christ and nothing will separate us from the love of Christ that led us led Paul to talk about God's sovereignty, that, that His plan in this world will be accomplished, that His word will not go unfulfilled and unaccomplished. And beginning in chapter 12, he wrote how we ought to then serve one another in the body of Christ. And, and our service comes in response to the mercies of God in our life. And then chapter 12 puts forth how our, what, what our life should look like before other people. How we should live in humility and service toward others and love and mercy towards one another. In chapter 13, Paul describes how we should deal with the authorities in our life. And then in chapter 13, verse 8, how we need to owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. And now comes chapter 14. Kind of a new topic, but still under the head of service to the body. It, it uh, has to do with, with dealing now this time with differences of opinion. Like chapter 12 dealt with maybe those who were hurting you, maybe from outside the church. It dealt with even love and how to love people. But now we're talking particularly about those inside of the church. Those who have different views and different differences of opinion. And he says not to quarrel with them, rather to accept them and, and not despise them and not pass judgment upon them, but rather to welcome them. So let's read our text. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. My message this morning is entitled, The Strong and the Weak. Because that's what Paul is dealing with in this, in this section. In fact, that's what he's dealing with throughout all chapter 14 and 15. Um, but we see the contrast there between the, between the two, really, in my first point. It comes in verse 1. It says, welcome one another. Look at chapter 14 and verse 1. As for the one who is weak, in faith. You can see it right there, the, the one who is weak should welcome, I'm sorry, the one who is strong should welcome the one who is weak. So we have the strong and we have the weak, and the one who is strong should, should welcome the one who is weak. The idea of welcoming here is, is embracing them, receiving them, accepting them. 
with arms of love extended in wholehearted kindness and grace. Bringing them in, right, with gentleness and compassion. That's what all of us ought to do with each other. Group hug, if you will. Right? Big church group hug is what Paul is talking about when he says here, welcome one another. Paul visions this unified church in Rome with a strong and living together with, with the weak in faith in glorious harmony. In fact, that's, that's the whole point of chapter 14 through 15, verse 7, which is this, this section before he, he begins to then speak about how Christ is the hope of the Gentiles. He speaks about his own purpose for writing, writing the gospel. Look at chapter 15 and verse 7, how it ends. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. It begins with welcome, and it ends with welcome. And any time a text does that, you can be almost assured that that's probably a major hint to the theme of the passage. And that is the theme of this passage, that we ought to welcome one another. And the standard of welcoming is the same welcome with which Christ has welcomed us. And a good picture, if you just want a picture in your mind, is to think about the, the prodigal father. The, the father of the son who took away his part of the inheritance. And he spent it on sinful living in a foreign land until finally he was broke. And he came to himself and said, I'd rather be a servant in my dad's house than here. And so he returned and came back. And the father saw him from far off and ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and had compassion on him. And he had the speech reserved, Father, I've sinned. And he kind of wouldn't hear any, anything of it. He just said, hey, let's, fill, let's kill the fattened calf. Let's have a party. My son was lost. Just come home. And that's how we ought to welcome one another. Because that's how Christ has welcomed us. And Christ welcomes us into His kingdom, foibles and all. He, he takes us in, as we, we sing sometimes, um, just as I am, without one plea. We, we come into His kingdom and He welcomes us with open arms. And we are called to welcome each other with that same standard. Chapter 15, verse 7. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In other words, right? If Christ has welcomed your brother into His kingdom, who are we not to welcome Him? It really gives an insight of who the church should be, right? The church should be made up of those whom God has welcomed into His kingdom. Now, Paul's vision of the church in Rome is a, is a unified church living and worshiping together in harmony. No division. Like, back up a few verses in chapter 15. This is where he's, where he's going, where he's heading. Look at this prayer. May the God, verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the idea here is living together in such a way that with one voice you can glorify God together. That's His vision. And that ought to be our vision as well. Seeking a unified believers at, at Rock Valley Bible Church. Not because we're all the same, not because we all believe the same things. Not because we're all strong in our faith. But because we welcome one another into our world. Now, now notice here in verse, verse 1 that the burden, the initial burden for this is on the strong. That's the assumption here in, 
in, in, in verse 1, ask for the one who is weak in faith, and then you might say, you who are strong in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Right? That is, right, in chapter 15, verse 1, we, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So when Paul looks at the church in Rome, he sees two sorts of people. He sees those who are, are strong in faith, and he sees those who are, are weak in faith. And, and he views the strong, and he calls the strong to, to not be condemning or suppressing or belittling the weak, but, but rather bearing with them and encouraging them and, and building them up, as chapter 15, verse 2 says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good. That's the golden rule in practice. But, but building him up. And so that's where Paul is, is going in chapters 14 and 15. He views the strong, taking this initiative to welcome the weak gladly into, into their lives and seek then to build them up. Right? And, and, and the idea is then build them up in strength, build them up for a, a strong unity. And eventually the goal for the church, for our church, is that we would be strong and unified he spoke about this in, in the book of Ephesians. He spoke about the leaders of the church equipping the saints, those in the church, for the work of ministry. Why, why would you equip people for the work of ministry? To the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the measure of the Son of God, to a mature manhood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, right, the, the aim of the church is simply grow in unity and maturity and strength. And the, the maturity of the body is simply the sum of the maturity of all the members. And, and that's what Paul's aiming at here, where the, the strong are, are welcoming the weak with open arms, building them up in faith, that they too might be strong, that all would be strong and mature, and the whole church would worship together in harmony. That's the idea, to welcome one another. Point number two, he says, don't quarrel with one another. Uh, again, verse 1, right? As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him. But don't welcome him in only to quarrel over opinions. Kind of gives you an idea of, of what the welcoming is. The, the welcoming isn't to, to come in so I can, can just bash you or teach you or learn you a few things. No, the, the idea is to come in without, without quarreling over the opinions. Right? These, these are different, different beliefs that, that people might have, different customs, different practices. And listen, we all come to Christ with different backgrounds and experiences, and these circumstances, which are different in all of our lives, will, will bring us to having different opinions about different matters. And, and, and that's okay. We don't need to believe all the same things at Rock Valley Bible Church to live in harmony. We don't need to practice all the things the same way to live together in harmony at Rock Valley Bible Church. Now, of course, there are some key things that we need to know, that we need to believe. In order to be a church, we have to believe in Jesus Christ. Right? That's what the church is, is a gathering of believers. Right? And, and we need to believe that. We are, we're the gathering of those who, who trust in the core truths of the gospel, that we're sinners in need of God's grace, and there's nothing that we can do in, in order to merit our way to God. But God has come to us. Right? Jesus Christ has come to save us from our sins. And, and, and by His grace, through faith in Him, we can live eternally with God. These things we must believe to be a church. We, we must believe the Bible, that, that God has given us this book to guide us in faith and practice and what it is that we must do. I mean, if we don't, if we don't submit to this book, then 
we're just submitting to our own thoughts. I love what the fifth question of the Westminster Catechism says. It says, what do the Scriptures principally teach? And the answer goes like this. The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And without a unifying submission to the Word of God, we cannot be a church. We won't walk in unity. Our unity will be, will be superficial at best. But where the Bible is clear, we need to walk in unity. And, and the Bible is clear in the, in the nature of God, the character of God, the, the nature of man, the unique saving work of Christ, the need for us to believe, the, the need for us to gather, the need for us to spread the Gospel. But there are places where the Bible isn't so clear. And these are especially the case when you get to the nitty-gritty of the application in your lives. Because the Bible doesn't speak about many things. It gives us principles about how to live, but doesn't speak about exactly the way that everyone ought to live. Lots of different ways that genuine believers can live out, out their lives. And particularly, like I just think maybe through the lens of, of raising our children. We, we have this, this guidance that we need to, with respect to our children, to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But there are many ways to do this. And it's going to look different in every single home, with different parents, with different kids. And it's, it, it's because it's going to look different in each home because parents are going to make different choices for their family. How they're going to spend their time. What sort of books they're going to read. Uh, what sort of music are they going to listen to. What sort of movies do they watch, if they watch? How involved will they be in the church? Will it be Sunday mornings, or will you go to a small group? Will you go to a prayer meeting? Will you go to a Bible study? Will you go to, how involved are you going to be? Or is your involvement going to be elsewhere? What are you going to eat? What sort of diet are you going to have? Uh, where are you going to shop? Uh, are you going to boycott some stores? Are you going to go to this place or that place? Who are you going to vote for? What's your political leanings and bends. I mean, I mean, all these things we do, th- listen to this, we do these things because we think it's best for us. We think it's best for us to, to carry this way, to have our, a relationship with the church, to read this sort of books, to, to be involved in this, this genre of, of life, to be involved in these activities. As a result, because of all these different ways in which we actually flesh things out, we're going to have opinions about what the best way to live. We each think that our way is the best way. But we need to realize that other people can have their own best way as well. And that's what Paul is saying here in verse 1. You don't need to quarrel about your opinions. That, that is, don't pass off as law what is your preference. Or what is your practice. And, and I love the way it's often said. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, you know what it is? Charity. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. That is, when the Bible's clear, we've got to be unified. When, when the Bible is, is silent, we need to extend liberty to all. And regardless, we need to know, show ter- charity. We need to show love. And that's the heart of what Paul is talking about here in Romans 14 and 15. Now, in dealing with these things, Paul really addresses two issues here in the church of Rome. The first is the matter of diets in the first four verses. We'll look at that today. And then the next one is the the matter of days or the the Sabbath day or or the festival day or some special day, which we will look at next week. And and it's interesting that he deals with both of these issues the same way. He he deals with with people with differing diets the same way he deals with people who who believe differently about worship and different days. And, And we'll see next week some of these same themes 
as I talk about today, are kind of come over and over and over again. And the, the same way that Paul deals with these issues are ways that we ought to deal with our opinions as well. So let's begin with Paul's first issue, the issue of diets. Issue is clarified right there in verse 2. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, there were people in the church of Rome with differing diets. There were the vegetarians who ate only vegetables. Picture them as a nice little bunny. And then there were the omnivores who ate their meat. And they ate everything. Now, it's, it's best to assume there's a burning issue in the church at Rome. That people had different customs about the food they ate. And they were judging and despising those who held different opinions. And there was conflict. The bunnies were arguing with the lions about which is best. Maybe the bunnies had an ulterior motive that they didn't want to become dinner. I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but, but they were arguing back and forth. My sense is. Now, it's not quite clear why exactly these, what, why these two sides developed in the church or, or who exactly these people were. But it is clearly because of their background or because of their beliefs, what it is that they, they thought. Um, my guess is the vegetarians, the bunnies, were on the, um, the Jewish side, is what my, my guess is. I mean, the Jews had very strict dietary laws. You can read about it in Leviticus 11. I preached a whole sermon about Leviticus 11 and the eating laws, um, where God categorizes the food as whether it's clean or unclean. And, and the cows were clean, but the pigs were not. And the fish were clean, but the shrimp were not. The, the chicken were clean, but the vultures were not. And the grasshoppers were clean, but the beetles were not. Like all these different things they could eat or they, they couldn't eat. And, and the reason why the Lord gave these laws is to set Israel apart from the other nations so that they might not be tempted to, to live with those nations. But they would be set apart. They would be consecrated. They would be holy. And, and so it would prevent them, in some regards, to mingling with other nations, intermarrying with them, and then leading after their gods and following after their gods of the pagan nations. I think that's a big purpose of why these here, but also to teach about cleanness and uncleanness. I think that was, was there as well. But, but now with the gospel that has come to all nations, the, the, the dietary laws, right, there's no need anymore to have a specific people eating specific food in a, in a specific way. Because God's people don't have to keep a separate diet anymore because there's no need for God's people to be separate because the gospel's gone out into the world, to all nations. In fact, that's going to be Paul's point at the end of, or the middle of chapter 15. You're going to see four different Old Testament quotes there that talk about how the gospel's going to the Gentiles, how the Gentiles should praise, the Gentiles should praise. And so, so all this, Christianity's gone from a religion of the elect people of Israel now to a religion of the world. It's part of why Jesus declared all foods clean, Mark seven nineteen. But the customs and the background of the Jews ran deep. When the Lord appeared to Peter in Joppa, he, he, he gave him a vision of this sheet descending from heaven, having all kinds of, of animals and reptiles and birds of the air on it. And a voice came from heaven saying, Peter, rise and eat. And Peter refused and said, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything as common or unclean. Think about it, never. How old is he, Peter, at this time? I don't know, 20, 30? He's never eaten anything unclean. And now God says, eat. He's like never tasted pork. He's never had it before. 
And the voice of God in the vision said, what God has made clean, do not call common or do not call it unclean. That happened twice more. Sheet coming down, Peter refusing. What God has called clean, don't call unclean. Right? Sheet coming down, Peter saying, can't eat. God says, what God has called clean, don't call unclean. And then he goes off to the home of Cornelius and says, oh, now I understand that God shows no partiality to anyone, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. But so deeply was it ingrained from Peter from his youth that not to eat anything unclean, that he saw things as repulsive. And you can read Galatians chapter 2 that, that seems like he, he had at one point opened up to eat, but then he pulled back again thinking it was wrong. And that's just how deep the, this eating and diet thing is for the, for the Jewish people. And Jewish people today, still there's this deal about eating kosher or not. Uh, even today, Seventh-day Adventists, who basically are, are, whatever, Christians, if you will, but they still follow the law. Uh, and it, it's hard to, I don't understand, because we've been freed from the law. But I remember we as a church, early years, whatever, 20 years ago, were thinking about renting a Seventh-day Adventist church building. And, and they said, well, if you have a fellowship dinner like we're going to have today, we had to eat it kosher if we were going to be in that rule. And so they said, well, if you rent from us, and we'll talk all about that. Right? It's a big deal for Seventh-day Adventists, this whole diet thing is. For the Jews, right, whose, whose father and grandfather and great-great-grandfather and great-great-great-great-great-grandfather all ate kosher, never tested, tasted any of these bad, whatever, these unclean foods, all of a sudden now you can. There's like, like this high religious sort of implication in these, in these foods. And so Peter found these foods re, repulsive. And I think it's reasonable to assume those in the church maybe had a a similar repulsion to meat. Now, it's difficult why Paul just speaks about vegetarians. Because the laws in vegetarian. E- eating meat was permissible. Cows and goats and chickens, you could eat that. But maybe there was something uh, from uh, Leviticus 17, which said the people not to eat the blood of the meat. Right? Because life is in the blood. And, and maybe some of the Jews in Rome went that extra mile. Right? Put that fence around the law so as to make sure they didn't transgress it by, by not only just not eating uh, the clean meat, but not even meeting meat at all, so that they would never even come in contact with blood to bring the guilt of eating the blood upon themselves. That's my best guess about why it's vegetarians. Uh, I'm not exactly sure. But maybe there is also a subtle res- uh, restriction that came from the source of the meat. Rome was a pagan city full of lots of idolatry. Maybe their sources of meat was a pagan butcher. Who had the practice of offering all the portion of the meat as a sacrifice to the idol before he sold it. And thus, the, to eat the meat would be to join in the idol sacrifice. Um, maybe that was it. I mean, we see that as an issue in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 and 10. Uh, maybe that was the case. And maybe the, the reason for the vegetarian diet is something else that we don't even know. But we do know that those are in Rome with differing diets. Some were vegetarians. Some were omnivores. And my guess is the omnivores were the pagans in Rome who came to Christ from a secular culture which basically said, do whatever you want. And regarding eating, they knew the the cultic practice of whatever, sacrificing to an idol. Yeah, that doesn't mean anything. Didn't mean anything to them, didn't bother them. And so they went ahead and ate any meat it didn't really understand. And so they didn't have any, any qualms. So it's interesting in God's timing. Today, we have fellowship dinner right after our service. And our theme, you remember our theme? It is... 
ground meat and potatoes, right? So we got the ground meat, we got the meat, and we got the potatoes. And I'm not sure this casserole looks nice. And so if you can stay, we'd love to have you stay. In fact, we're going to set some tables upstairs just to help some people with some difficulty being downstairs. If you want to stay, you're more than welcome to. But I suspect that most of you will gladly eat of your meat and potatoes. Um, Though I know that there are some of you who will abstain from the meat because I know that some of you are vegetarians. And um, you're vegetarians by choice, and that's okay. You haven't talked with me. I've never had a conversation about your vegetarianism, but that's okay. I don't, I don't think it's going to be a problem. I think you're just kind of, well, I'm just not going to eat the meat, and that's totally fine. No conflict. For us, it's like easy to see, right? We just, we just don't, don't eat the meat. But for them, there was this conflict because these meat eaters were highly judgmental upon, or these non-meat eaters were highly judgmental upon others. And they, they were despising it back and forth. And this was a big issue of their day. And we may have our big issues of our day that they didn't have back in their days. But there was this conflict in Rome where one stood by their family traditions and refused to eat, and the other stood by their freedom and gladly ate. And I think the conflict came because of these different cultural clashes that they were, were having. And maybe it escalated further because they sought to press their opinions upon other people. Maybe lots of discussion about how, no, you shouldn't eat meat. And the, the Gentiles the pagans, from the pagan background were saying, yes, you can eat meat, doesn't matter. And maybe back and forth this was a, a big issue. Well, Paul's counsel came to both sides. Here, here's his counsel. He says this, verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed them all. It's really simple. Omnivores, don't despise the vegetarians. And vegetarians, don't pass judgment on the omnivores. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take both of these points at the same time, right? Don't despise and don't judge. Because they're coming to both the strong and the weak, um, but, but I do think that Paul chose his words carefully, despising and passing judgment. He said that the, the one who abstains right, is not to pass judgment, and I'm sorry, is not to despise. I'm sorry, the one who eats is not to despise, and the one who abstains is not to pass judgment. Um, I, I say this because in verse 10 he says the same thing, right? Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brothers? And, and, and I think that whether you abstain or whether you eat says something about you and says something about your tendency, right? So, so in other words, I think there's something about rule keepers. These people who abstain, right, because of their family tradition, God has said this and we're, we're going to follow after the ways of the Old Testament law and just a, a way of, of righteousness that we keep ourselves righteous, that those who live according to this higher standard tends to be judgmental. Like, we're living here, we're abstaining, but you're not abstaining. Oh, you're worse. You're bad. Right? Judging other people for that. They, they tend to think if you keep rules and if you, you live a, a, a way of righteousness, right, that, that you subtly, you'll think that you're more righteous because you keep a better and higher standard. That you stay away from the meat and you condemn others who live a different way. In our day, all right? you might put the category in people who maybe homeschool their children. Right? That's what we do. And how can you send your children to Babylon? I've heard homeschoolers say that to me before. To send your children to a public school is to send your children to Babylon to be educated in the foreign gods. 
that's a judgmental spirit sort of coming out. Or, or maybe, um, maybe those who abstain from alcohol. Like, I, I totally abstain, right? And, and, and for that person, right, looks upon those who drink just with kind of, well, look at me, I, I, don't, I don't drink at all. And it's this tendency to look upon others with judgment. Uh, or maybe those who, who don't smoke or, or don't dance or don't go to the movie theaters or don't have Netflix or don't have tattoos or hold the King James Bible who go to church every time the, the church doors are open, listen only to Christian music and think that sports is a waste of time. Like your grandfather thought sports was a waste of time. Right, Darren? Maybe that's where you are. But that can be like a, a judgment upon other people because they're keeping the standard that other people like aren't really living up to. That's why Paul says, let the one who abstains let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. On the other hand, there's something about those who understand their freedom in Christ, who aren't bound by these sorts of rules. And they, they tend to despise those who try to live like, like this, holier, this holier life. Like, oh, you're trying to keep that rule, but you don't need to keep that rule to be righteous in Christ. And maybe they, they send their kids to the public school. Maybe they enjoy a, a glass of wine on occasion. Maybe they love the Marvel movies. Maybe they love the music of the 90s. They have a few tattoos, right? Sunday morning church is enough for them. They've joined the dancing club or they play pool in the bars, right? Some of the, these people might, might be more free. And then when they see others coming in judgmental to them, they despise back the other way. And these sort of people look down who are more strict with their standards. They, they scorn them, maybe dishonor them, maybe disregard them. It's out of touch. Well, you're just high flute and holy roller. You're just out of touch, right? And, and then there's this back and forth, this back and forth that goes. That's why Paul says in, in verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. I have freedom, I can eat. But don't despise the one who says, no, no, I can't eat. These unique temptations on each side of these opinions on, on how to live. The, the rule keepers are judgmental and those who understand their freedom tend to despise those who follow the rules. Maybe it's despising out of the judgmentalism that comes their way. And really, as you think of your own life, you think of your own conviction, convictions, my guess is that sometimes you'll be on one side and sometimes you'll be on the other. But maybe the majority of your life might be on one side. Like, might be more on the, maybe I call it the legalistic side, the, the abstaining side, the, the higher righteousness side. Or it might be on the freedom side. Like, hey, we're free in Christ, we're forgiven in, in Christ. There's a lot, God has given us First Timothy 4. He's created all things, He's given all to us to enjoy. I, I can do these things. And when you find yourself on the rule-keeping side, just know that your temptation is judging other people to the detriment of the church. And if you find yourself on the, the freedom side of an issue, know that you will tend to despise those who think themselves to be so holy. I might encourage you just to understand your tendency and work hard to counteract that. Like if, you, if your tendency would be to be judgmental, then work hard not to despise. Work, work hard not to be judgmental of those people. 
Or if your, your tendency is to despise, right? And look down and disregard and dishonor. Don't work hard and pray that God might help you to combat that. And my exhortation really to you is to understand where you are in light of those issues. And realize that your call is to welcome Him who's weak in faith. Welcome those who believe differently than you do, who practice differently than you do. The whole reason is because we need to understand the gospel. It says, for God has welcomed him. Again, the same word. It's 14 verse 1, 15 verse 7. God has welcomed him. Why are you not? If God has received him by faith in Christ, why are you not? We, and we need really to grasp the gospel. We need to grasp the gospel for ourselves. And we need to grasp the gospel for others. And we need to embrace the fact that God receives us by faith alone. Romans 4, right? You can turn back there. Remember when we were back there, it was talking about the, the core of the gospel and really, really what it's all about. It says in chapter 4 and verse 3, Paul quoting from Genesis 15 verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. His faith in trusting God came back from God as righteousness. It wasn't, um, it wasn't his works that counted him as righteous. It wasn't his righteous deeds that made him righteous. It wasn't his religion that made him righteous. It was his faith. And that's the glory of the gospel. God receives us by faith alone. And by faith alone we're made righteous. And look at verses 4 and 5 of Romans 4. He's painfully clear. Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, was due, right? So if we work to be righteous, then God will give us what is due to us. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. He's saying it's not a matter of we're working to get to God, it's that we believe God and he comes down and embraces us. That's the, reor- the glories of the gospel. And the implication of that has implications of, of how we live. The choices we make concerning schooling and smoking. And the choices we make concerning dancing and drinking and, and music and movies. And it, and it has bearing upon how we live and will impact how we live. But it has no bearing at all on our standing before God. We're not justified by these things. We aren't made righteous by these things. We're made righteous by faith in Jesus alone. And that's how God receives us. That's how God welcomes us. He welcomes us by faith alone, not by deeds. Titus 3.5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And, and when God saves us, we respond. That's Romans 12, 13, 14, 15. All response to the mercies of God. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Right? There it is. We receive the gospel, we change, we transform. Which, which by the way, that's our governor in terms of these, these, other, these other issues maybe. Where, where someone may abstain and want to stay away from that. It's not like, hey, we're free in Christ. Let's just go and pursue whatever we want. That's not what it is. Because that's not a living sacrifice acceptable to God. Right? We, we want to be, be mindful that what, the way we act is acceptable to God. It's pleasing to God that He receives our worship. And, and we do that by renewing our minds, chapter 12 and two, verse 2. We do that by living in humility, chapter 12 and verse 3. 
We do that by using our gifts, chapter 12, verses 4 through 8. We do that by loving one another, chapter 12, verses 9 through 13, and overcoming evil with good, chapters 14 to 21. Why? Because God's been merciful to us in Jesus Christ. And that's why we make the choice that we do. It's why we raise the children the way that we do. It's the sort of media we consume, how we spend our time. It's because of what God has done in, in us. Now, in the end, we need to know that each of us will stand before the Lord. And so, knowing that gospel, that people who have been welcomed by faith, they'll all need to stand before the Lord. And again, you don't need to step in the place and be judged in the place of the Lord. That's what verse 4 says. Look what Paul says, Romans 14, verse 4. He says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's for his own master that he stands or fall, and he will be upheld, for the Lord will be able to make him stand. See, our job is not to be going out passing judgment on others. We need to realize, my fifth point here, is that God will judge. And I love this question he puts forth. He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? I mean, I don't need to call Paul Peterson's boss and say, hey, you know what? I meet with Paul about every Tuesday, and I know that you give him only 30 minutes for lunch. But I know that sometimes he spends 40 minutes with me. And uh, so he's, he's a slacker at work. So I, are you really keeping your eye out on this guy? That's not my place, is it? Or Roger's not here today, but I think about Roger. I don't, sometimes I call Roger when he's driving on his truck. I'm not sure when to get him. Sometimes I, he's driving on his truck. And I'll say, hey, Roger's boss, whatever his name is, do you know that sometimes Roger's talking while driving? I'm not sure that's really safe. Is that according to company policy? You better check up on that on him because I, I don't know. Are you watching him? My job isn't to be his, your, your boss's judge, right? You will all stand before your bosses. And so likewise, we all will stand before the Lord and we all stand before the Lord on our own. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. And when it comes to other believers, or maybe you have a difference of opinion of, of somehow that they, they're applying their Christian life, you realize that God will judge. And, and you, your job is not to judge. Your job is to, to welcome and encourage and strengthen just know that they will stand and give an account to the Lord. And our judging or our despising is not going to help the situation. It will just distance us from each other, create disunity and disharmony in the church, and then old screw tape and wormwood will be really happy. We're called to welcome and not to judge. Even when we know that they're not right. So consider this. If Jesus declared all foods clean. Peter was told to eat, because God is called clean, don't, don't call unclean. Paul said, look at chapter 14 and verse 14. He says, I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. And he say, well, what, what exactly is he talking about there? He talks in general, but then he applies it in specific to eating. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love, 
by which you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And I think what Paul's saying here is, you know what? It's okay to eat. We don't have to be vegetarians. It's okay to not be a vegetarian. But there are people who in their own minds think, no, this is the godly way that I need to live before God. I need to be this vegetarian in order to to make it pleasing to God. But even when Paul knows that that's a wrong position, he still fights for the weaker one, by the way. He fights for the weaker one to be able to live their Christianity in that way. I find it interesting that the weaker ones are the ones who are following the rules and walking in a more righteous way. We, often, we don't think like that, right? We often think that the, the strong one is the one who's really committed and really following all these different... Look at how holy that person is. Well, that person might be weak because they got these scruples in their mind. They think that they got to live this way in order to please God somehow rather than understanding liberty and living in, in a right way. So it may just be that you're legalistic standards. Maybe you're thinking you're so strong. Maybe you're actually the weak one. You've got your standards that are so high. Look at how righteous I am. Look at what I have to do. I have to follow this way to follow God. It might be you're actually the weak one. I just put that out there. But Paul defends that person who thinks that they just cannot eat anything but vegetables. Paul defends them and his whole heart I mean, I mean, I love his heart here. It's coming, and you'll see it throughout the whole passage. Is it the weak ones who, who don't realize that, that this isn't helping them before God? It's just their, their custom and their manner of life, and is creating within them. I'll, I'll probably talk next week about, I went through a Sabbatarian phase in my life. And I, I'll just preview here a little bit. I went through a, a phase where I, I, was, I was starting to be really convinced about a Sunday Sabbath. And you know what it created me? A judgmentalism that was ugly and awful. Thinking I was righteous and holy. Thinking I was strong. I was totally weak because I was judgmental of others. We'll talk about that next week. But I love Paul. Even to the weak, he lifts them up. Verse 4, right? Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. And here is the affirmation. My point six is that God will uphold him. He will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, we might see another believer's week, and we might even be right in our uh, judging or assertion of them. We might tend to judge them. We might despise them, depending on what side we come on. But you need to realize that that doesn't really matter. What, What matters really is the Lord... And how he'll stand before the Lord, that God will judge him, and what Paul affirms is even the people who are weak, God will uphold them. God will uphold them. And God is the one with the ability to uphold us. It's really an expression of the sovereignty of God in our lives. Just as God is sovereign in our lives, God is sovereign also in the lives of other believers. And we need to realize that, that, that God will uphold you. If I'm a strong, God will uphold you who are weak. Well, however we see that. And we just need to see even someone we despise. We need to get rid of that despising and realize, you know what? God's working in His way with those people and He'll hold them up. He'll keep them into the end, regardless of their opinions, which eating, Paul says, are wrong. Regardless, they will still stand. 
Psalm 63, verse 8, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. There it is. Clinging to God, being upheld by God. I love what Richard Sibb said long ago, when the child falls not, it is from the mother's holding the child and not from the child holding the mother. So it is with God's holding of us and knowing of us and embracing of us and justifying us that makes us state firm and not ours. I cling to God. He, my soul clings to you, but your right hand upholds me. It's, it's, not our, it's not our clinging so strong with that death grip that's going to keep us. It's God who upholds us. And that's the promise that we have, that we love. But Paul is giving this promise to the one you despise and the one you're judging. You know what? God's going to uphold them. They're fine in God's hands. And I just encourage you to see how, how commending Paul is. And that's the attitude we ought to have as we welcome people. We'll be commending of them and for them rather than against them. Paul says, I know that God will make them stand. And I just encourage you to do that with those with whom you disagree. Maybe they're living their life in one way and you think that's, well, I wouldn't do that. My way's better. No, no, don't, no, don't, no. I will trust that they'll stand before the Lord. God will be able to make them stand. I'm just going to embrace them and love them. And don't, chapter 14, verse 20, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. These are like opinions. Don't take these opinions and push them beyond and destroy God's work by not welcoming the believer in. So let's, let's pray. Father, I finish with Jude 24 and 25. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Father, how how easy is it to see with hindsight God, those struggling over food and what what a ridiculous thing it seems to be. God, that someone would have a conviction about eating and then despise and judge those who don't have the same conviction about what it is that they eat. And yet, God, I'm not, I'm not naive enough to think that that could be a reality for some of us in this room, that we, we see what other people's eat, people eat and despise them for that. I pray, oh God, you'd help us to be welcoming people. God, to realize that the, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, as Paul will say, but righteousness, joy. Father, I pray you'd help us to major on the majors, minor on the minors. As said, and the essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and all things charity. Oh God, I pray you'd help us be that way. Even as after church here, we have an opportunity to eat together. God, I pray that that would be an opportunity to share, show our charity and love as we welcome one another and love one another and serve one another. God, we, we thank you for the food that you abundantly provide. We thank you for the grace you've given to us church. We pray you'd lead us and guide us in days to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.